Cambridge Mines with Trevor Dan. For this episode, I've come to one of the grandest houses in Cambridge to meet one of the most distinguished and recognisable voices in British broadcasting. Just along from the Fitzwilliam Museum and the Judge Institute is the Master's Lodge of Peterhouse, the oldest college in Cambridge University. In residence there now is Bridget Kendall, former diplomatic correspondent of the BBC, also formerly a reporter in both Moscow and Washington, and now back in the town where she went to school. As well as her administrative and academic duties in the college, Bridget is still active on BBC Radio 4 and the World Service, so interviewing one of the great interviewers was a daunting prospect. I thought I should start by seeking some advice. So Bridget, in your career you've interviewed a lot of very powerful and influential people. When you sit down with a a Putin or a Gorbachev, do you ask them a nice soft warm-up question? Well, actually, if they're a Russian, probably yes. Because, um, especially an older Russian, because there was a tradition in the Soviet Union that you always had to make a report to your party meeting or whatever. So I always give people a chance to make their report and then get down to questions, which is more like a conversation. But, of course, if it's live, you can't do that. If it's live, you have to get straight in there. Let's talk, first of all, about Russia, because you've spent a lot of time in your career there. It seems to me that Russia's more in the news than ever because it's involved in so many other countries. Do you believe the stories of Russian hacking and um, Russia trying to get Donald Trump elected and all the other things that we hear now? Well, that's a very big question. I think everyone's quite puzzled about the Trump-Putin connection and how deep it goes. I think if you look back over the last century at um, especially the Cold War period, uh, Soviet activities abroad, what they called active measures by the KGB, which were attempts to influence events, straight propaganda, placing articles in papers, giving people money, making friends, not just finding things out, but actually trying to steer events a bit. And no doubt that was happening on the other side too. Then actually... Some of the things that are being talked about now, you think, well, yeah, I mean, that's what they did. So why wouldn't they go back to their old playbook and do the same thing if they think that now we're in a new conflict with the West and we need to try and influence events out there? So um, active measures might include, in the news sphere, getting the message out on social media, trolling, making friends with certain political parties in Europe, The new thing, of course, is the whole cyber world of both leaking online through WikiLeaks or hacking to find things out. And um, you'd think probably they are doing that because, well, why wouldn't they if they could? And the Russians have always been rather good at the whole cyber business. They've, They've always had fantastic hackers. One of the things that mystifies those of us, I think, who grew up during the Cold War is why... Would it be in Putin's interest or in Russia's interest to have right-wing parties being successful? Well, I don't know whether there's a a total conspiracy where, you know, this is a Manchurian candidate who they somehow blackmailed or bought and then they placed him and, lo and behold, he's now president of the United States. I don't think that's likely from the conversations I've had in Moscow ahead of this election and the way it's been handled since. 
I think more likely they looked at a range of candidates and thought who might suit them. But it is an interesting thing about the Russians that consistently senior analysts in Moscow will tell you we prefer Republican presidents because they tend to be more pragmatic and based on arguments we understand about security, about um, you know, an outright conflict, about standing tough, and about making a bargain for what's in our interest and in your interest. Whereas the Democrats tend to be annoying and bring up human rights. And then we're having a different conversation and we just find it, we just think that they're trying to interfere in things they shouldn't do. So I think they were interested in a Republican candidate. But I think they were looking hard at Jeb Bush, for example, and maybe other people who they thought might stand a chance. And I, I don't think that they thought Donald Trump was going to win. And one of the reasons I say that is that in the autumn, as the campaign was reaching a fever pitch and Hillary Clinton looked as though she was ahead in the polls, in Russia, on television, there was more and more talk of how we're very close to war with the states. It could be conflict, especially if Hillary wins. And they even had a massive nationwide exercise in case there was a nuclear attack with people going into bunkers and things like that to sort of raise the fever pitch that we might be moving into a new level of conflict with the United States, which, of course, is helpful if you're in a country like Russia has been, which has an economic problem, because it's a good argument to get people to tighten their belts. And actually, on the day of the election, the editor of RT, Russia Today, state-sponsored outward-facing television even tweeted, uh, American democracy RIP, as though the argument there is this election has been rigged by the establishment for Hillary to win, and the ordinary people might have voted Trump, but it's not going to happen, so democracy doesn't really work in America, which is one of the sort of tropes that has been put out there that, you know, American democracy is actually very flawed. Who are they to tell us what to do politically? And then, of course, Trump won, and then the next day she was tweeting, I'm so happy, I will drive around Moscow with an American flag on my car. Well, you know, maybe all that is contrived and a lie, but I think it probably isn't. I mean, normally those sorts of tweets, and I know her slightly, they sort of sound to me like they're true. So I think even at a level of people who, from the outside, might be seen as the top propagandists in the government, they didn't sound to me like they thought this was a done deal. And it's been very interesting since, as some of Trump's administration officials have been a bit critical, have said they support NATO, have criticised Russia for bombing Aleppo or the flare-up again of the war in Ukraine. And even some things from Trump himself where he's said, we need a better deal with Putin on nuclear weapons, Obama was too weak. It seems like the message in Moscow, especially to the state-run media, is, you know, back off Trump a bit. Don't let's put our legs in that, in that basket, which suggests to me that maybe there was an attempt to influence, but I'm not sure that it was total control, quite how far it went. You know, was money exchanged for favours? Are there other things we don't know about? You know, I don't know about that. Maybe in, in time that will come out. Let me ask you about being a foreign correspondent and how you find things out. I was wondering, you know, if I want to find out what's going on in... Britain. I can talk to MPs, I can probably talk to ministers, I can certainly get comments from a very well geared up press system. If you want to find out what's going on in Moscow, and you've just arrived, who do you talk to? How does that work? Well, I'm a great believer in public sources, I always have been. So actually, when I first arrived there, 
quite a young correspondent in 1989. Of course, we didn't know what was it. It was a very febrile political time, but it was sort of on a knife edge. We didn't know whether the reforms Mikhail Gorbachev had brought in were going to succeed or be rolled back, or was it all going to go further? No one in the wildest dreams, I think, thought the Soviet Union would collapse. But clearly you needed to have a handle on what was happening in politics. And I used to go to the Parliament every day and sit there all morning. London was three hours ahead, so nine in the morning was six in London. You know, no one was going to be calling me. This is before mobile phones. So I'd just say, I'm going to be out of the office for four hours. Go to the Parliament. And in, in, at that point, it was the centre of political life. It was a new revived organ by Gorbachev to be an arena for public debate, political debate. And actually, lots of the top ministers were there. And you could catch them in the breaks and you could watch the, what they were doing. I remember sitting watching the head of the KGB, Khrushchev, who later was one of the coup leaders when they tried to end the reforms and roll the clock back in 91, sitting there quite high up at the back of the presidium. And he had a huge pile of papers and as the debate was going on, he just sat there coolly signing them, putting them to one side. And he sort of thought, you know, KGB, you know, if this was the 1930s, he'd have been signing death warrants. <laughs> but of course, I'm sure he wasn't doing that. It was some bureaucratic thing he had to get through that morning. But he wanted to be there to hear what they were saying. So that was, that was sort of a slightly curious moment. But I think it's still true that watching what people say in public, at press conferences, what they say on podiums, party meetings, you know, people weigh their word in public and they're held accountable for it. So it's an important thing to listen hard to what they say. And then you add to that what else you can find out from people you talk to in the crowd, from your own sources, from what you read in papers. And then you get to know people who, you know, are well-connected and or who always say interesting things. And you sort of build up a sense of who's worth listening to and who's worth talking to. The other thing I would say that was... Is being, I've always found curious about Moscow, and I think it's still true to some extent, and it certainly was true in those days, was that the BBC really counted. And I could ring up the president's press secretary and say, look, you know, X has happened. They say there's been a nuclear explosion at an at atomic research centre in, in Leningrad or St. Petersburg. You know, is it true? And I could ring him directly, and he would take my call. I mean, he couldn't do that in Washington. In Certainly not now. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, it's just that the BBC would be just one other foreign broadcaster and the people who really count there are the New York Times, or well, not for Trump, obviously, but Fox News. But, but in, in Moscow I th at that time, and I think still, they've always been quite concerned about their international image. And the BBC is a big global broadcaster, is, is a conduit if you want to send a message, you know, which is the reason why I, I ended up being asked by the Kremlin twice to interview Putin. They wanted to put him out on the world stage, and they thought that the BBC was a good way to do it. So you sat down with Putin. What was he like? What did he call you? Was it sort of, hello, Bridget, how are you? Was it on that level? Well, I should say that two experiences were a little bit different. One was in 2001, he'd been in power a year. The other was in 2006. He'd been in power six years He'd sorted out the country a little bit economically. Oil prices were high. He'd paid back the foreign debt. He was a much more confident, assertive president. First time round, there were two Mr. Putins. There was a kind of not very confident individual who'd just become president and was probably thinking a bit, why me? And not very used to interviews, certainly not with big international broadcasters. And then there was the other Mr. Putin, KGB trained, clever, able to think on his feet, 
very competent at understanding his brief, especially if it was to do with security, who would lash out at you if you asked him a challenging question on nuclear weapons or Chechnya. But if you asked him, well, what are you reading? Then, then you could see the, the, the you know, a bit more hesitant. In fact, his answer was very interesting. He said he was reading two biographies, one of Peter the Great and one of Catherine the Great. And I just thought, oh, you know, that's kind of stock answer, a kind of, you know, Russian answer, his safe answer. But looking back, I thought, no, 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 that's very telling. <laughs> this is a man who's interested in imperial power and great, strong leaders. Did you um, like him? I think I kind of respected and admired his, his competence and intellect but I found him quite narrow in his understanding of what was important. And that was particularly true in the second interview. We had questions from all over the world, and he was so defensive and so keen to score points all the time. Uh, there was one student who'd been an African student and who'd written in from Ethiopia. He'd been an, an, an African student in, in, in Russia, and he said, I was terribly abused, uh, was the target, not just of racial slurs, but people actually physically attacking me on the streets, my scars on my arms. What does the president say to that? What image is he giving to the world that he allows some Russian people to be so racist? And he just turned around and said, well, you know, our Russian girls, when they go abroad, they get uh, treated with prejudice too. Some people assume they must be hard currency prostitutes. It's not fair either. So it was always a kind of, that Russian experts call it whataboutism. You know, you say something and they say, yes, but what about X? So I, mean, I remember pushing it and saying, but Mr. President, here we are live on the BBC Worldwide. Would you not like to say something to this African student? Would you like to apologise to him for the behaviour? And he said, well, no, I don't think so. I mean, for all I know, maybe he was breaking the law and was a criminal. And I just thought, you know, how, how misjudged as a politician. He had an opportunity to reach out, say something diplomatic and statesmanlike, but he didn't. And I think that's quite indicative of the slightly defensive, vindictive posture he has, maybe personally, but certainly now, after all these years, towards the West. So could he change now? Could we have better relations again? If he thought it was in Russia's interest, yes. Would he believe it truly? No. I think he's fallen deeply out of love with the West. And there's this added element that there's been since 2011, when there were protests on the streets of Moscow and other large cities at election fraud, which evolved into calls for Putin to go. And, and I think my sense is he was deeply shocked by that and angry and truly does believe that it was orchestrated by the CIA, because that's exactly the sort of thing that the Russian secret police would do. And then followed the Arab Spring and what's happened in Kiev, where it's broken away from Moscow and now they're at war with each other. And I think he deeply believes the West is to start to weaken or fracture Russia, like happened with the end of the Soviet Union, and you can never really trust them. And they will all, they think of Russia as the enemy, and he thinks, therefore, back that they are the enemy. And I think it's like, you know, it's like a very bad divorce. I'm not sure we can, the, the separated couple can ever really be on proper, they may be on speaking terms, but they can't really be friends again. So, Bridget, there you are for those years walking the corridors of power in Moscow and in Washington, and you're the person, you're the go-to correspondent for the Today programme and the BBC One News at 10, and 
that must get the old adrenaline going and particularly you know in the multimedia age where there's five live and radio four and bbc news and worldwide and there's all these other people you've got to service don't you miss all that now now, now you're back here in in the rural idyll that is peterhouse well um i do go to broadcasting house once a week i still have my own program the forum which is a discussion program for the world service and I'm involved in another set of documentary radio series for Radio 4. It's part two of something we did last year on the Cold War. So I'm quite involved. And um, now and again, the Today programme still call me up, or PM. So, um, you know, when I can fit it in, I do interviews with them. So it's not over. Peter House has a reputation for being one of the more traditional colleges. It is the oldest are there a lot of um, old traditions that you, you have to rail against? Well, there are some old traditions that I absolutely love. We have the oldest dining hall in continuous use in Europe, I think, and candlelit dinners every night, if you want them. You don't have to. You can go in earlier and have a quick dinner. And uh, we use candles quite a lot. And a lovely chapel with a very traditional service on Sunday evenings. And I think we all enjoy that. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that it, if you do these things, which are about ritual, about remembering the past, about community, they don't actually mean that in your head you have to be conservative. And I think it's true, Peter House did used to have this reputation, but I, I don't think it's like that at all now. I mean, for, for a start, they would never have elected me, a woman, a non-academic, from the media, if they were that conservative. And I find both the fellows in the college and the students are very outward going. Uh, we have a broad range of different sorts of people from different backgrounds, different parts of the world. And um, I wouldn't say, I would say, how would I characterise Peterhouse? Extremely friendly, a very cohesive community. Everybody knows each other and pretty relaxed, actually. So in a funny way, when you get to know it, it's the absolute opposite of what its old reputation used to be. Did you have to apply for the job, Bridget, or do they sort of come and dob you up? Uh, well, this, um, the process of finding masters for college, I think, happens in different ways at different times. And sometimes they go out and look for people and, and put the word out. Um, and sometimes people come looking. There is an application process. Uh, it's quite long. Um, so... Everyone has time to get to know everybody and see whether, I think on both sides, whether it will be a good fit. Um, I certainly feel I've been very lucky. Uh, we're incredibly happy here, me and my partner, in this beautiful house, lovely college, and we really enjoy it. And was part of the attraction that it was, in a sense, coming home for you? Because you went to school here, didn't you? I did. I, so I lived here till I was 18 when I went to the other place, Oxford, <laughs> Uh, I jokingly say to get away from my parents. I suppose there was something of that. When you're 18, you do feel like that. It was also very good for my subject at that time, Russian. But I kept coming to Cambridge. My parents lived here. Your dad was an academic, wasn't he? he yes, he was professor of statistics and at Churchill College. And um, it has been a kind of unexpected pleasure of coming back that I know it, and it is a bit like coming home, and it's partly, I know the city, and it's a pleasure to walk down Free School Lane or uh, into the market and places I remember from growing up. And it is such a beautiful city, and we are living very close to the centre. What a privilege. But also, I keep meeting people who either I knew, or they say, I knew your father or your mother. 
And it's incredibly touching and I didn't expect it at all. But it's very meaningful for me and is really lovely. There's something of the village about Cambridge, isn't there? Despite the fact that it has a worldwide reputation and it's got the science park and all the great industries and the very famous universities, but um, there's something kind of small and, and, and cohesive about it. That's right, and if um, you've spent uh, a working career of 30 years in London or other big cities, Moscow, Washington, D.C., it is a real pleasure to come to somewhere smaller that's so green that when you wake up in the morning and open the window, you hear pigeons instead of traffic. You can walk out onto the fen, which comes right into the middle of the city. What a wonderful city in so many ways. One last thing. The BBC, you've spent all your time there. The BBC's constantly under threat from people who say, why do we need this independent journalism? Is it impartial enough? What's your view now? I know you still do shows there, but as you step back from it, what do you think of the BBC and its reputation? I think it's a terrific place. And I think in some ways it's needed more than ever in this era of so much information to navigate your way through. And it's so difficult to know what to believe and what weight to give it. Perhaps in our busy lives more than ever, we need places to go, people who we trust we want to hear from and hear what they think or what their list of news items might be and besides that i think one of the one of the hidden jewels in the bbc that a lot of people don't know about are all the language services attached to the world service so over 30 of them and there these are people from different countries russian arabic chinese whatever and um, they're very, very high-grade journalists who are broadcasting back in their, their native language into these areas. So they have to be absolutely sure that what they're saying is right because they've got a very critical audience. So they help inform those broader journalists who you might see on the 10 o'clock news or writing on the website, or they might be writing on the website. And you're getting this really top-grade journalist stuff from people who are bilingual, but also excellent journalists and I think it gives, especially on, on international affairs, it gives the BBC a head start over many other organisations. And I have seen them agonise over being utterly precise about how you cast a sentence, whether or not this graphic is correct. And the amount of work and attention to detail that goes into all of this is really awe-inspiring. And I think that if people knew more about that, that they wouldn't spend so much time criticising the BBC but would understand there's a lot of very serious work going into it and let's face it in a world of fake news you need people who take their jobs as seriously as that so I think that um, I would always defend it on the um, precisely on those lines. Bridget Kendall, Master of Peterhouse, that sounds good doesn't it? Thank you for being our Cambridge mind. My pleasure. Cambridge Minds is a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio. There'll be another episode along very soon.